Your Locked On Sharks, your daily podcast on the San Jose Sharks. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello and welcome to Locked On Sharks, your home for all things San Jose Sharks. My name is J.D. Young and I'm joined with Eric Fowl and then we have Shang Peng jumping in from San Jose Hockey Now. But we don't care about us. We actually have a special guest today. Uh, we have uh, Mitchell Brown, a hockey analyst for Elite Prospects, um, otherwise known as uh, Wordsmith for Young Hockey Boys. Mitchell, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Uh, we wanted to get you on today because you just wrote an article about um, our San Jose Sharks and kind of going ranking their top prospects. And I guess we need to kind of start at the top because uh, Ryan Merkley, who's long been considered the best prospect um, for a somewhat weak prospect pool for the San Jose Sharks, has uh, not at your number one spot. You have Thomas Bordalo, who has taken our hearts and minds with his opening uh, season at, at Michigan. Uh, why, why did Bordalo top your, your rankings? Uh, it mostly came down to where we had Bortolo in the draft. So his performance to start the season with Michigan didn't really move any needles for us, at least not at least not during the process of the ranking itself. Um, we had him quite high. I think we had him at like 22 or 23. And so to us, that suggested that he was a, a tier above Ryan Merkley, especially given the the uncertainty that comes with projecting a player like Ryan Merkley, who... You know, he's improved, but he continues to struggle with defense, with physicality, with the pace of decision making. And Bordalo just brings a, a little bit more certainty in addition to a skill set that, while not quite as flashy or even more conducive to point producing, is going to be an equal or greater value in the NHL. That makes sense. So I think more of a general question, I just sort of want to figure, you, you mentioned the, the point per game or the scoring rate, but sort of when you hear or when you look at at prospect evaluators these days, at least sort of the ones online, of course, NHL scouts don't really give away their their secret sauce. But um, it seems the two things people look at are likelihood of making the NHL and then sort of ceiling when they get there. Are those kind of the two main thresholds that you used when trying to sort of rank all these players within a system? Uh, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's mostly just about skill. So, like, mm-hmm. I don't like the term ceiling or floor because I think, like, very rarely do players land on either end of the spectrum. It's mostly just about what's their most probable outcome. And so, like, you have the most probable NHL outcomes. So, like, if they play in the NHL, you know, hit 200 games, they could be a third-line center. And if they don't play in the NHL, they'll probably be, like, a lower-end AHL guy. So there's, like, a really large range of outcomes in that case. So that comes with greater uncertainty. Whereas if, you know, you have a player like Thomas Bordalo, he could be a 3C. And if he's not a 3C, he's probably a top call-up guy. And so the range of outcomes there is a bit narrower, so he gets a, a value bump comparatively. But overall, it's just a matter of evaluating skills. So there are lots of guys who put up great numbers without exciting tools in any way. You know, there are guys who they shoot just a little, a little bit better than OHL average or whatever league you're talking about. And so they score a bunch of goals because they lean into that asset and forget about all the other things that they can do to help their team win. And so you're looking for something that's 
more exciting, more translatable, and then you're trying to project a, a curve after that. So like, say they're really reliant on one type of play that, you know, maybe the outside lane net drive doesn't really translate to the NHL, but it shows that they like to play inside. It shows that they can play with pace. So you are more willing to project that player highly than say someone who just takes a bunch of low percentage shots from the outside and thinks they're going to score on them a ton in the NHL, which just doesn't really happen. Right, right. That makes sense. And so are there are there certain skills that tend to translate to the NHL more often? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the big one when you're looking at offensive ability, it's deception. So being able to transmit false information. You know, you you want to look off your pass. You want to look off the shot. You want to integrate some sort of deception into your release, whether that's like a curl and drag, or maybe you're just keeping your blade facing the boards or the corner instead of facing the net as you load up your shot. So it's little details like that. And then I guess when you get to like the higher level players, like Merkley is an amazing offensive manipulator, as I like to call him, because he completely changes the geometry of the defensive structure on the ice with just like one quick look in a different direction or how he handles the puck or whatever. Like he totally dictates the pace of the game. And those are the elements to me that result in higher level offensive ability rather than just how hard they can shoot. That makes sense. That makes sense. And I think it's something that that can get lost or I you know this is why scouting reports are great um because I think I think you can learn a lot from point per game scoring and sort of how old they are and that sort of thing compared to historical peers but like you said there's a lot more that goes into it, such as how they're scoring their points, whether or not maybe they should have more based on on what they're doing, um, and kind of just their their all around game. Are there? You mentioned sort of deceptiveness. Um, what else do you look for? Like how how can you how do you know? Yeah, you guys come out with all your your rankings, and how do you sort of separate? How can you tell? Hey, this guy should be a first rounder. Maybe this guy goes a little bit later. What what sorts of things separate those those clear first rounders for you? Yeah, it's a different process every year, right? Because the draft is has a different makeup. Like last year, it was a it was a pretty top heavy draft, and it really thinned out. So we had like some forty guys who were in first round consideration. Whereas this year, you know, you might be struggling to hit twenty five. So it really comes down to just like how the draft shakes down. But in general, if we're talking, you know, like you're your mid-tier first-round pick, the guy who's going to go 15th overall, you want to see a base in which they can add tools. So sometimes that base might be they have a really good stride, really deep, really low. That'll help them, you know, win puck battles. It'll help them uh, initiate contact to separate with the puck. It'll help them skate faster. Uh, It's just something that they don't have to add uh, later on in their game. Or maybe you're looking for, again, like the manipulation ability. And depending on the draft, sometimes the manipulation ability is just flashes of it, you know? Maybe they do it two or three times a game where they open up a defender and make a really nice play. Or sometimes it's a constant element of their game. Like Maverick Bork was a really good example, and Brendan Brisson as well. Uh, They were two guys who were very manipulative in the way that they play, but they were late first-round picks in last year's draft. I mean, they should have gone much higher, but that's neither here nor there. And for Bortolo in particular, he was a really good example because he was a guy that you could add a lot of skill elements to because he was so well-rounded at everything. It was 
his skating, he could make little improvements there, but it was good enough that you didn't have to totally reshape what he's doing. He's a good enough shooter. He has deception. And it was a matter of putting him in the right position to succeed. You know, you want him to be around good line mates instead of, you know, Luke Tuck. You want him to be around players who are going to open up a little bit of ice for him so then he can play with the game in a more comfortable pace and he can start dictating decisions instead of having the puck rush to the net every time he makes a play. All right, guys, before we get back to talking about more Bordelow versus uh, Merkley, I'm going to take a quick break to talk to you guys about Built Go. So Built Go is the best workout gel on the market. It comes in one and a half ounce packages, so it's great to put in your golf bag, your briefcase, or in your pocket to help you get through the day. It's a five-hour energy drink with that same crash feeling, plus it's natural, so it's better for the body. It comes in three delicious flavors like peanut butter honey, chocolate coconut, and chocolate mint. And it has great stuff in it to help ignite your work, like B3, honey, and a caffeine. Right now, when you visit BuiltGo.com, use the promo code LOCKED, and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKED for 20% off at BuiltGo.com. And uh, with uh, Bordalo, um, you know, he, I, I think uh, now that he has in your uh, in your rankings at least, you know, surpassed uh, Merkley. And I know that uh, you know you're you're not fond of uh, using the word ceiling, but you know, just if we can talk about uh, Bordalo as opposed to Merkley, um, you know, what do you see? You know, I spoke with a, another amateur NHL scout, and he told me that in his mind, and this is a non-Sharks uh, scout too. That in his mind, uh, Bordalo has a first-line NHL ceiling. And is that something that uh, you see uh, possibly in his range of outcomes for him? I mean, I think everyone has a possibility of becoming a first-line center. But, like, with Bordalo in particular, he's probably more of a mid-six guy, like a two-three guy. Um, I just don't see enough high-end offensive ability from him, although he's adding more and more ability to his game. Uh like with Bordalo in particular, it's that his pace of operation tends to be a little bit slower than what you would generally see at this stage from a first line center prospect. Uh, he's not quite as deceptive as these other players, although he's really improved that element. He doesn't have the physical capabilities, not like as in can't like physically improve, but mm. he's he doesn't have quite the same ability to create space with his body and play with the defender on his back and play under pressure. He's more of a guy who thrives with having a little bit of open ice where he can then not necessarily dictate the pace or manipulate someone. He can do it in flashes, but he's best when he's identifying the best possible route and taking it rather than creating it. And so is it fair to say then if we're comparing Bordalo versus Merkley that uh, Merkley, uh, you know, has that chance to be a, you know, as you mentioned in your article, a regular 50 point producer, and that's a pretty high-end player for a defenseman in an NHL. But Bordalo is ahead of him because Bordalo, you feel more comfortable that Bordalo will hit sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, be a NHL a top, uh, or not top, but be a strong NHL contributor. Whereas Merkley is, you know, very much kind of that kind of, you know, boom or bust cliche. For sure. Like, I really hate leaning on a guy's defense is why they're not going to play. But I think Merkley is a pretty extreme case. Like, He's never in good athletic position, i.e. his knees are never bent. Like, he's always standing around watching the puck. He's never looking for threats behind him. He's very committing defensively. He just runs straight at guys who are skating towards him, which is never a good thing because players can just go one direction or the other. He's not driving the play in any direction. Um, and he also gives up on plays, like, a ton. 
And it's just really difficult to envision an NHL coach trusting him enough to play him in the minutes that he needs to let his offense succeed. And the other part of it is that his game is entirely based on just demolishing the competition, right? And it takes a while to figure out how to do that, especially when you're a defenseman and you're relying on superior skill and you're sort of the last guy back. And that's what makes Merkley so, so impressive. That's what makes him an elite level offensive player. But it's also, but it also means that his adjustment curve to the NHL is going to be insane. And if an NHL coach doesn't trust him enough defensively to give him that leash, how is he ever going to play? Right. And I have to say, too, that to take from your article, I love the phrase you used that uh, Merkley developed a one and done defensive game uh, this past season in London, which is still not sufficient for the NHL. But that's a lot better than his none and done uh, defensive game before. Yes. Yeah, it's it was a pretty big improvement this season. Like, I, I, I'm not going to sit here and be like, it's where it needs to be. but it came along a lot faster than I thought it would. And I think that he's in a really good position now translating to the pro level. And if he goes out and he's like, he's really impressive, he's improved his defense yet again, or at least he holds steady to what he was because he is jumping up a level, <laughs> then he goes right back into the conversation as not only being the Sharks' best prospect, depending on what Bortolo does, of course, but being you know a top 50, top 30 prospect in the world. Okay. I'm hoping for that. I want that. I want that uh, top top Merkley going. I've I've more general question. Sort of. I don't want. I don't want you to have to spill all the guts of of your entire ranking. But um, you watch a lot of different hockey leagues in looking at these players, um, and I know that sort of one way that people have tried to come up with understanding how they compare to one another as NHL equivalency scores and sort of, you know, uh, a goal in, in the NCAA is worth maybe 0.2 goals in the NHL kind of thing. Um, my, my big question is, how would you compare the CHL and NCAA Division One play? It's all really just about projecting the tools again. Mm -hmm. But as for how they differ, like, the OHL is a lot less organized. Like it's just it it looks like chaos compared to what a lot of NCAA teams are doing. And so I think that's both a benefit for some players and a drag for other ones. There are some players who are just gonna look better in that really structured environment because they're more tactically aware than they are like creative. And there are other players who are gonna have way less success uh in in the NCAA because, you know. It, their skill set is just a little bit different. So I, I think Ryan Murphy is a great example of this. You put him in the NCAA in his draft year, or his, I guess it would be his D plus one. He's probably a far worse player in that environment because he's not going to have the same level of freedom to do what he wants offensively. And then you don't have the, the basis or the foundation of the rest of the game to help him succeed, right? Like he's an incredible transition player, but the defense element, especially at that time, was so rough that he wouldn't have had the level of success that he had. I know he got traded and everything, but he scored a pile of points, and right. he was very good. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I'm just sort of trying to capture your sense for if there's any major differences between between different leagues. And and one thing that gets brought up sort of tangentially to this is is maybe the idea that some players struggle moving from from bigger ice in Europe over to North American ice. Do you, do you find that, I don't know if it's like a cliche. Do you find that that is something that some players do struggle with? 
Uh, it's a tricky one because I think, I think it's really more developmental based to like what happened when they were developing younger. Like there are some players who have a seamless transition because they play with a more inside driven up tempo game. And then there are the players who they look to use the added width on the ice to create. And those are the players who have more difficult transition time. And so it really comes down to just picking, you know, what is the core of their game? What is the basic loop that they use to create offense? Um, and that'll kind of give you the answer for if they're going to translate it from the big ice or not. That that makes sense. That, so and then and then continue on the on the translatability factor. I know you've done a ton of prospect tracking, mostly I think CHL, USHL, and and you started to get into some some college guys. Do you sort of pay attention to those guys and how they progress in their careers? Do you? sort of see any projectability with the things that you track in those players? I realize it's, it's a small sample size for each of them, but I'm just sort of curious if anecdotally guys who maybe are really good at transition or really good at creating expected goals at a young age uh, have a you know higher likelihood of making the NHL later on. Yes, and the answer to that is yes, for sure, 100%. Uh, because a lot of the time with what you're getting with expected goals, expected primary such, which is just like expected goals, but for passing the puck to someone, um, they're doing it because they're more talented than the opposition, and that directly translates to how you project players going in the NHL draft, right? But also, there are some little things that you can use for, like, a developmental thing. So to tie this back into Thomas Bordalo a little bit, last year, almost everything that he did started from the outside. He was an outside player. He played on the outside. He wanted to beat players to the outside, and he flashed some ability to get to the inside, but it wasn't a consistent part of his game. This year, 58% of his zone entries are straight up the middle. Mm -hmm. And so that has kind of changed the way that he's able to approach offense because now he has defensemen converging on him and he can hit the teammates out to the side. He can stop up and hit someone sneaking in behind the defense. So he's not solely limited to slowing the play down. And that's part of been or that's been a big part of his success this season is he's getting himself into better positions despite going up a level. And it's a significant step. And like, I can't say enough, enough good things about how, like how big that is in his game, because it's always been, a, it's always been an issue. Even watching him as a 16 year old, it's been, okay, well, he's good from the perimeter, but he's good from the inside. And it turns out he is very good from the inside as well. It was just a matter of getting him there. And that's the kind of stuff that when you track the data, you know, you're looking for like the overline stuff, you know, the controlled entries, are they dumping the puck in a lot relative to their team or not? Are they generating more scoring chances relative to their team? But you're also looking for small developmental quirks that might provide some sort of explanation for why they do or don't succeed when they step up the next level. All right, guys, before we continue to dig into the rest of the Sharks prospects and uh, where Mitch has some of these guys ranked, we want to take a quick break to talk to you guys about Built Bar. So Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. comes in 18 amazing flavors, including six Six new flavors like caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, and apple almond crisp. Each bar is covered in 100% chocolate, so they're soft and easy to chew. They're great for health-conscious people or if you want to lose or maintain weight while still indulging in a delicious treat. Bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, and great for keto diets. And right now when you go to BuiltBar.com, use their promo code Locked On, and you'll get 20% off your next order. Again, use the promo code locked on for 20% off at builtbar.com. 
And you know, we've talked about uh, uh, Merkley and Bordalo, the top of your uh, top 15. Uh, there's three guys I was wondering about who uh, don't crack your top 15, and I'm wondering uh, th- why they, they didn't. Uh, Dylan Hamaluk, uh, Igor Spiridonov, and uh, Jonathan Dahlin. And so, you know, what, why, you know, Tamaluk is a surprise because he's a second round pick, maybe. Uh, Spirit Donoff, you know, is going to probably going to be on Team Russia's uh, Real Juniors. And Darlene is, of course, somebody that we've heard a lot about over the years. So I'll start with Darlene. The simple fact was it was just an uns, it was too much uncertainty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, a very uns- it's a very unfortunate situation that he's found himself in with the Vancouver Canucks, everything like that. He's a tremendous player. If there's any sort of certainty that he's coming back, he would he would be much higher on the list. Uh, it was just the uncertainty thing. He followed, we use this thing called future value, which is just estimating the value of a player. He was a three and a half. And mm-hmm. the last guy on the list was Sasha Chemlevsky, who was a three and a half. So he was right in that mix. With Igor Spiridonov, it was, uh, he's just a touch below average at every sort of offensive dimension that we look for other than puck handling. And that combination you know if puck handling is your number one trait then it probably isn't going to result in anything at the next level because you can do all sorts of crazy things with the puck but can you get it into a position where you're going to succeed i mean he's a below average skater he's a below average shooter he's a below average passer at the nhl level based on our projection and so he just didn't make it dylan hamiluk though is is probably the most interesting case because he was once very good <laughs> like that, that first half of his draft season before he got injured was very impressive. He's a he's a tremendously talented player. Like you simply don't find players who are big, somewhat mobile, and can really handle the puck and like to work it on the inside. But he went to a low scoring Kelowna team where he just never was really able to uh, find success. I've also heard that he was sick. Um, and there the other part of his game, I guess, was that. He's very, um, I don't know, he's, he's not a great decision maker. So he's a guy who relies solely on getting the puck and escaping pressure, but he's not a particularly good skater and he's not a particularly good uh, problem solver. So like if you put him in a situation, the odds are he's just going to try to stick handle his way out of it. And against higher level competition, you're, I don't care how good you are, you're not going to be able to stick handle your way out of it every single time and he's just not simply good enough of a puck handler to be able to you know if he has three guys on him the puck is lost if he has two guys on him the puck is lost if he has one guy on him who's uh, also has support the puck is gone as well and so it's just a really tricky developmental challenge with him with that said his unique package of skills is still something that's worth keeping an eye on uh, it's the same thing with Jake McGrew as well. Like McGrew is a is a tremendous player who brings some really good dimensions to a hockey game. It's just a matter of in McGrew's case, can he stay healthy, and in Hamluck's case, can he add all these other elements to his game? That makes sense. We haven't been uh, very excited about Hamaliuk around here just because he seems like one of those guys who maybe went higher than he should have because he was big. Um, but appreciate sort of the insight into the fact that he does have some skill behind the frame and of course that maybe the point per game or the the scoring rate wasn't as high because of the team he was on. I think the biggest surprise for me and maybe for a lot of people in your rankings was, was Shemilevsky all the way down at the bottom because he scored pretty well in the AHL last season and, 
and seems to profile as a fairly skilled player. And so I'm just kind of curious. I would say that is is where your rankings differ the most from public perception. And I'm just kind of curious if you could sort of elaborate a little bit on on your thought process there and maybe what what we as a general public are missing um, and why you think that he's at that level of a prospect right now. Sure. So I just want to give a quick shout out to Daniel Daniel G. He's one of our scouts and he handled most of the Sasha Chemlevsky reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I will say though that I'm very I do very much agree with him on all of this and I, otherwise I wouldn't have wrote it, right? But um, the difficulty with him is that he doesn't really have a ton of NHL ability. Like I really like his game. I really like the way that he plays. Uh, he's in the thick of every puck battle. He's really good at turning puck battles into scoring chances. Uh, he's quite physical off the puck to set the to set the play up. Before he makes the retrieval, he'll scan, he'll bump a guy, create a little bit of distance for himself, and then turn around and throw the puck up. Difficulty with him is that he's a below average skater. Uh, it, it's just really rough. Like he has wide stride recoveries, which then prevent him from getting a full push into his next stride. Uh, he recovers with his toes pointing outwards, which reduces his glide time. He struggles to cross over properly. So he's not integrating his hips. When you see a guy cross over, you want to see them basically, you want to see their hips basically fall into the ice and they catch themselves with the skate that is crossing over. And he can't do that. And it just kind of, that level of skating ability leads to a lot of puck handling issues, even though Chimlevsky can deke through people in open ice. In small ice, it means that when he's getting bumped on, it changes his torso positioning, which then changes the way he handles the puck, which then leads to him bobbling it more and more. It's, I I mean, I mean, he also holds the puck out in front of him all the time. It's not across his hips. You want to see a player when they're setting up deeks and stuff like that, have the puck across their hips. It's, it's better for deceptiveness because then you can cut across the defender. If you have the puck right in the middle of you in a glide, uh, you can't really fake one way and go the other. Your success rate of recovering the puck on the other side is much lower, and he almost exclusively handles the puck in that in that fashion, which means that the rushes that you see him occasionally pull off are, are probably not going to translate to the to the next level. In his credit, though, he is a very strong defensive player, especially for someone his age in the AHL, and so that might be something that he leans into to then carve out an NHL career, but. I was really high on Chimlevsky in his draft year. I thought he could, if he improved his skating, he could really become something uh, something special for a, a late pick, you know, maybe a third-line guy. Mm-hmm. And it just hasn't really improved to the point that it should have, and then you compare it to the rest of his skill set, and the rest of his skill set is probably more at a bottom six rather than top six level, and some of the poor habits that he has offensively lead to a very difficult projection overall. I mean, if he leans into the defensive side, you know, he takes he's he's hot on the draw. He won 58 percent last year in the AHL and he continues to develop his off puck awareness. Maybe he has a role as a 4C, but until that happens, I'm not entirely convinced. That makes sense. And I think sort of working in his favor in this regard is that I, I think many Sharks fans, me included, sort of pictured him as one of these more skilled players who might end up playing higher in the lineup or just being an AHL guy, but it sounds like he could carve out 
a role in the bottom six in the NHL, and there's plenty of room in the Sharks lineup right now to kind of beat out some of the guys that are there. And, and I think a lot of the players that are fighting, at least for the, the bottom six center roles, don't really have a ton of offensive ability. And so even though he struggles there, he his defense plus what he offers in that capacity might make him a good fit for one of those two center roles coming up. And he's got a long offseason to work on his skating. So all sorts of uh, all sorts of, of potentially, I don't know, good fit factors for him, even despite maybe some of his shortcomings. For sure. I mean, ultimately, when you're doing this kind of stuff, you just have to be reactive to things. And if he comes back and he's, his skein has taken a major leap, then you adjust accordingly. You know, I'm, right. I'm perfectly cool taking L's all the time. Like, that's literally what this is about. You lose on every single prospect. It's just a matter of how much you lose. Right, right. That makes sense. And I wasn't, I wasn't knocking your evaluation of him at all by any chance, by any means. I was yeah. just sort of commenting that that there seems to be more uh, a better fit for him with the current team than we maybe have thought. Yeah, for sure. I, I don't, don't worry. I don't take any of this stuff personally. It's all good. And I agree with you one hundred percent. Like it's the same thing with Alex True, right? Like mm-hmm. True is gonna be True's got, he's got a role, man, and he's gonna play that role. It's a matter of whether or not it's a valuable one. Right. Right, right, exactly. Well, he was he someone who who had skating issues? Too? I feel like the Sharks have maybe taken some chances on guys who haven't been the best skaters and have just hoped that they can they can fix that part of them. Yeah, for sure, it's a pretty consistent theme. Like, I don't think True is ever going to be an above average NHL skater, mm-hmm. but he's a he's an intelligent hockey player. He's physical with and without the puck, which allows him to find a little bit more space in uh, in an absence of any sort of NHL caliber speed. Uh, and so he could figure it out. It's the same thing with, uh, I mean, you could look at Joachim Blickfeld as well, who I'm a really big fan of. He's improved his skating a lot since being drafted. Um, John Leonard is another good example of a guy who's really come a long way. Brandon Coe has some work to do, but he could really, really pop as a skater in a couple of years with some work. I mean, it's really just like up and down the prospect list you go and you find guys who have improved their skating or will have a lot of, I guess, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, you know, that they will improve their skating. Like Tristan Robbins is a, he's probably an average NHL skater by a projection right now. So that would be a five on our one to nine scale. But we gave him a 5.5 because a lot of his skating inconsistencies seem to come from a lack of strength. It's not a bunch of poor mechanical flaws. It's that he lacks strength, which prevents him from maintaining his good low stance throughout the length of his shift. It's it's interesting how much, and Sheng just mentioned this, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm repeating everything, but sort of how much detail you put into players skating. It sounds like you you value that part of a player's sort of prospect profile pretty highly. Yeah, it's because it's the base for everything else, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're really inconsistent from stride to stride, the way you're going to be handling the puck changes from stride to stride, right? So if you just picture yourself kind of leaning over your stick, handling the puck, when you get pushed down, your your blade, instead of being centered on the ice, then pushes to the heel. And that'll change the way that you handle the puck and the control that you have. And so if you're a superior skater, you can then handle the puck better. And similarly, you can come off the walls better and then cut towards the middle. And then you have the whole ice in front of you where you can see your teammates and that'll improve your passing. If you're a better skater, you can get deeper into your shot in your lower body, which allows you to transfer more downward force, giving you a more powerful, consistent shot. And it also allows you to win more puck battles because you're lower, you have better leverage. 
All right. Well, you, you also mentioned John Leonard. He's someone I'm probably irrationally excited about just because of, of how well he seemed to do in college last year. And I know he's he's a late bloomer, but he's someone who seems like he could fit into a third line. So NHL teams, instead of having kind of two top scoring lines, they try to have three scoring lines now. So he seems like someone who could play on a third line. He has enough defensive acumen that he can deal with that, but also has a shooting ability to add a little bit of, of scoring in that type of role. And so uh, even though it's not, I guess, a super exciting outcome, that sort of makes sense to me. And so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to see what he does um, in the pro ranks this coming season, if it happens. Yeah, uh, he's, uh, this is kind of my big regret of the article is not having enough time to go back and watch a bunch of games of his from two seasons ago, Mm -hmm. because when you score that many goals, especially early on, it changes the decisions that you make. And so part of my concerns with his game essentially were that he shoots the puck way too much and he's not a good enough shooter to justify it. Like he has some really good elements to his shot, but it's also not a diverse enough shot. It's also he doesn't do enough pre-shot like to improve his shot location, to set up defenders for screens, to uh, transfer his weight for catch and release shots and so on. It's all about his individual ability to get into those shooting positions. But what if he's actually a really good passer and we just haven't seen it because he's being told to shoot? Because there were moments where he's looking off his pass and then he pulls it into his feet and then passes it across. So like changing the angle of the pass, essentially, it's called a slip pass. And he does that, and that's a sign of some higher-level offensive ability. And so even though I only gave him a 5 on our 1-9 scale of passing ability because he just doesn't do it enough, maybe it's just coaching, and maybe it's just a product of his situation. And so being able to see that tape from two years ago probably would have provided some answers into what was going on there. And so my projection with him was a little bit... Uh, more reserved than I guess some of the other ones were because uh, I just wasn't fully sure what to make of that fact. I mean, I evaluate him just now in this time, and I'm not convinced he's going to be anything more than a than a third liner. But there are so many other factors that I just wasn't able to consider for that. And I mean, at the end of the day, he's a talented player. He works hard, and he's got a great base because of his stride. Well, it's too bad the Sharks organization didn't have a. Uh, rankings like yours uh, last season because I think if they had rankings like yours uh, they may not have had as much faith in their young forwards <laughs> that they they try to uh, they, they try to push forward last year and didn't quite work out uh, but anyway going to next year though uh, which uh, young sharks forward and I want to include a uh, Noel Gregor in that bunch because uh, even though he's played a you know a, a bunch more games but uh, you know he's played enough games to not count as a prospect but I'm wondering who you think is the young Sharks forward that is most likely to contribute at a top nine level next year. That's something that's a you know very deep need for the Sharks team. Yeah, it's Joachim Blickfeld. It's probably the only real answer here, I think. I mean, you could say True or you could say Gregor, but I think Gregor's probably a grinder, uh, perhaps a really good one in that case. And True is, you know, he's a, he's a big kid who knows what to do on the ice. And I mean, that's a valuable asset in itself, but I think if you're looking for a top nine guy, it's Joachim Blickfeld. Um, I was, I was not a fan of his last year in the WHL. I had no idea how he scored as much as he did. <laughs> and now I watch the tape and I think he's a bit of a, a bit of a hockey genius out there. He's one of those offensive players who's better off the puck than with it. 
you know, he's he's all about finding little tiny seams to shoot for. Instead of saying lock to a defender's hip, he pushes off of them just as the puck comes through. So then he can deflect it or pick up the rebound or get open for a pass. And it's really impressive what he does. It's just all about outsmarting the opposition, finding these little areas from which to work. And then from there, he also builds off a, deep, a decent passing game. There was one play that really stood out to me where he took the pass and then faked a catch and release shot, which catch and release shots aren't easy to do because you're transferring your weight across your body with the pass. And so he fully faked it and then pulled it forward and passed across the slot to a teammate for a tap-in shot that didn't go in. And just that level of awareness projects as someone who can continue to, to outsmart the opposition at the next level. And it certainly doesn't hurt that his skating has improved a lot. He's a bigger kid who understands like how to use his body and how to involve his frame, both with and without the puck, to create a little bit. Uh, and he also really, really understands his role. Like he doesn't bring a ton of transitional value and it's not because he's lacking in talent. It's because he sees his teammates being in better position than he is and having a better skill set, or at least one that's more conducive for transition success. So he gets the puck, he makes a quick play in motion to get it, to get it to them. And then he gets back open again and relies on his own best skills, which is getting open, finding seams to shoot from. And to me, that's a really translatable skill set. Like he was right there with uh with Wiseblad and Merkley uh mm-hmm. and Gushkin for the two spot. Well I gotta thank you for that uh headline a Joachim Blickfeld hockey genius. So check your replies tomorrow. Oh god. I mean can we put an only in front of it? Can we put an almost in front of that? Or like you said you said a bit of you said a bit of so you did have a qualifier there. So okay, okay. I suppose that's good enough. Man. Yeah Joachim Blickfeld <laughs> Yeah, hockey genius, future fifty goal scorer, uh, dark horse, dark horse Calder candidate. Love it. You heard it here first, folks. Mitch, Mitch has taken us away with uh, the future accolades of everyone's favorite Danish forward, or maybe it's Norwegian. I forget. He's Danish. He's Danish. Same. And same thing. Same with True as well. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's going to be a competition here. Who's who can be the most popular Dane? Uh, True is is Nikolaj Ehlers' cousin, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, I I I go on those elite prospect pages all the time. Like you might even <laughs> clear clearly, I'm on there too. Obviously, not as much as you are, but way too much time on elite prospects when I should be working. All right, Mitch, that's gonna be that's everything that we've got. Um, now is your time to shine. So plug uh, everything you can or want to plug. So if you have YouTube, your Twitter page, you want to say hi to your mom, everything, you can do that here. All right, so I just want to give a quick shout-out to Artemi Knizev, who we didn't talk about, who's very good. Don't forget about him. He's fun, and I like fun. Anyway, you can follow me at Mitch L. Brown on Twitter.com. It's a good website. It's fun. I post lots of articles there that I wrote, and occasionally I poke my head out and post thoughts as well. Uh, you can read all of my work at eprankside.com, or if you forget that, just go to Elite Prospects and our work's on the front page. Right now we're doing a team-by-team um, team ranking, so we're ranking all 31 teams by their prospect pool and then ranking their top 15 prospects within them. And we got the Sharks, I think, at number 20, which might seem high to some people, but we like all the Sharks. They got Knizev at 7th, so that seems that seems pretty good to me. You know, check us out, read all of our work. Uh, keep listening to this podcast, you know, binge a few more episodes, and I hope you enjoyed my uh, my time on here. We did. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Mitch, for for hanging out with us today. Um, if you want to find us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Locked on Sharks. 
You can find myself at my fry hole. You can find uh, Eric at foulball15. You can find Shang at Shang underscore Peng. And of course, at San Jose Hockey Now. And that'll do it for us this week. We will catch you guys next week where we have more guest plans. So thank you guys.